sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, we explore what to do when your doctor is sick and yet practicing medicine. Florida Times Union Enterprise reporter Catherine Lewin discusses her investigative reporting on one local ailing doctor and the patients who've been hurt. Then we look at one solution to this issue, assessing and rehabbing doctors at University of California, San Diego's UCSD Physician Assessment and Clinical Education Program. But first, I was in a rare heated exchange trying to de-escalate it when my patient referenced this song. patient, a pilot for an airline who was upset with his recent neurological diagnosis, says, you know, you're ripping my heart out here, doc. Flying is my life, my identity. I'm grounded. You doctors in the FAA are like Sting and the band police, always watching me. Who's watching you, doc? My patient was correct. Airline pilots must submit to either yearly or twice a year rigorous medical examination and have a mandatory retirement age of 65 years, all federally registered and assessed. The rationale is simple. Healthy pilots, safe skies. Physicians, on the other hand, have an honor system and a complex system of state boards and health systems admitting privileges. My patient's question has always haunted me. Will I know when it's safe not to practice because of age or disease? And who will tell me? Sadly, there's a local case here in Jacksonville of an orthopedic surgeon that continued to operate despite having a serious neurological diagnosis. Now there are allegedly hundreds of hurt patients impacted by this one doctor. So today's show explores a series of thorny and tricky questions such as, is my doctor safe to practice medicine when they're sick? What needs to be done to address this issue and prevent problems? And what solutions are out there to address this? To start us off, joining us today is Florida Times Union Enterprise reporter Catherine Lewin, who has done exceptional investigative reporting on the surgeon here in Jacksonville. Catherine, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's so I'm good. looking forward to talking about the story. It's so great to have you on. We love having you uh, and, and also love reading what you have documented in your reporting. So I wonder, I'm wondering if you could set the stage for us. Tell us the who when, where, and how of this story. Right. So this story centers, um, well, partially on this one doctor, um, Dr. Richard David Heakin, um, an orthopedic surgeon here in Jacksonville, um, a very well-known orthopedic surgeon, really throughout his career, um, a, a master in his field. 
And he was also did orthopedic work while he was in the military. Um, and then he eventually opened his own practice here in 2000, um, you know, to great acclaim from his, his patients. Um, through my reporting, I've actually met a lot of people who had good experiences with him. And then really the what that started this is that his patients say around 2016, they started noticing a change in him. Um, you know, shaking hands, uh, difficulty walking, um, slurring his words about as early as 2016. Um, although in my reporting, I found that at least as soon um, the, the, the there weren't known complaints from staff at St. Vincent's, Ascension St. Vincent's Hospital in Riverside, which is where he started operating out of in 2015. He opened a clinic there. That's when um, hospital leadership started hearing complaints from staff. So there's that. And wow. then in 20, then in 2020 is when the first lawsuit was filed against him um, from patients, basically alleging that his health was deteriorating and that because of that, he was botching surgeries and, and seriously harming patients during surgery. Hospital leadership knew and didn't stop him from operating is the really the crux of the, the story. Sorry if I wandered a little bit. No, no. Yeah, you, there's you, a lot of parts to this story. <laughs> you, you've set the stage because at, at the end, you know, we have a, 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 a physician who's sick with a very terrible condition. And yet we have a lot of hurt patients. How many patients are we talking about that have been impacted from this right so at the time of publishing there had been 365 lawsuits filed against dr heakin or former dr heakin um his clinic as well as saint vincent's uh, riverside hospital um i want to say some of those lawsuits were only against Heakin in his clinic. You know, some of them were only against the the hospital. Like it's it's they're all mixed. But basically, 365 lawsuits have been filed from former patients, represented by one law firm um, based out of South Florida. So yeah, about 365 people, basically over hundreds, hundreds. Catherine, how many patients have been impacted from what we know, uh, and what kind of things happened to them? Were there any deaths? Right. So there have been, um, at the time of publication, there were 365 separate lawsuits filed against um, David Heakin, Dr. David Heakin, um, his clinic, and the hospital. So that's hundreds of, of individual people. And there were all different kinds of injuries. He, he allegedly severed tendons, broken bones, um, misplaced prosthetics, put a put a knee in backwards. And then there was at least in in these cases, one death of a patient um, during a hip surgery, um, her femur had been had been broken um, during surgery, and then she did pass away on on the operating table. So there's been a, a variety of, of different kinds of injuries that um, of the people I personally interviewed, have left many of them um, permanently on painkillers, uh, unable to walk or move around. It, it was, they were difficult interviews. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sitting here with my mouth just, just, uh, well, I, 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 I don't have words. So, uh, do we, let me, let me play the other side. Do we know the surgeon's diagnosis, how, how he's doing? I mean, this, he may not even be aware of this. Right. So, that was a, a kind of a big chunk of the story. So on the plaintiff's side, the people who are filing the lawsuits, they claim in court documents it was due to a, a progressive neurological condition. Um, and the whether or not it can be public, what Dr. Heakin's exact um, diagnosis was, is still being litigated in court. So we did not um, publish that, but it was basically a progressive neurological condition that was leaving him um, with some really terrible symptoms uh, that you don't want in your surgeon. <laughs> no question. 
one thing that hits me, and and this I know because I I go in to monitor uh, uh, OR cases from a neurological perspective, um, is that there's a lot of people in operating rooms. There, there there's a, an army in some cases. Uh, how 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 did the hospital and health system? N- not intervene or what, what happened in that regard? Because there, there's always a lot of people. There are. Yes. And I mean, there were, you know, good actors acting in good faith, not just patients, but, but, um, people who were working with Dr. Heakin, people who were working in the hospital who tried to bring attention to it. And it's not clear when Ascension St. Vincent's, um, hospitals, basically leadership, really started hearing complaints about Dr. Heakin's work or when they really knew how bad it was. Um, But what we could find from reading court documents, depositions from hospital staff say that they started sharing concerns with the hospital's leaders by at least March 2019. And uh, Dr. Heakin did not retire until April of 2020. So there was this a whole year, a little over a year, where he really continued to operate, even after surgical technicians um, and all different kinds, you know, there's all different kinds of people who are in the operating room during a surgery um, who tried to talk to managers and say, hey, something isn't right here. He, Dr. Hegan isn't making sense when he talks. He can't pick up smaller instruments. Um, and and so there was just, as far as we can tell from public documents, there was just a huge kind of breakdown in leadership between the people on the ground really working with Dr. Heakin and then the leadership within the hospital. Catherine, are there any updates on those 300 plus lawsuits? And I want to make a note to our listeners here. Uh, we reached out to the hospital spokesperson for an updated statement. Uh, but they said we have nothing additional to share. So are, are there any updates on on any of those lawsuits? Right. Yeah, no, that's something that I'd really like to be working on in the in the next couple of weeks. Um, when I was uh, preparing to finish uh, finally filing and publishing the story, there were new lawsuits um, being added every day. Uh, some have settled. Uh, you know, in and out of court. It's, there's so many, you know, it's a huge mix of what's kind of happening in these individual cases. But I can imagine for sure there would be more lawsuits now. After the story published, I had people reaching out to me saying they'd had a surgery with Dr. Heakin that had left them, allegedly left them, you know, injured in some way. And I was like, well, I'm not a lawyer, you know, I'm not the person to reach out to. (laughs) Um, But just me alone, I was getting emails from people. So yeah, I can imagine this is litigation that um, everyone involved is going to be locked in for years to come, really. Uh, when was Dr. Heakin's uh, medical license revoked? And and so what happens next? Right. So his, um, his uh, medical license. So what happened was... Um, in in really the timeline is that, you know, November of 2020, lawyers for plaintiffs notified Dr. Heakin and St. Vincent's and the Florida Department of Health of the first lawsuit that they planned to file alleging injuries, um, which, according to state law, should spark an investigation. Right. Um, And then in January 2020, there were text messages where a doctor was letting the CEO of Ascension St. Vincent's letting him know that he's seeing Dr. Heakin's patients with major problems, even with people he might have to amputate their, their limbs. Um, April, 2020, Dr. Heakin performs his last surgery, his clinic at St. Vincent's June, 2021, the Florida department of health begins investigating one of the claims against Heakin July, 2021, he can, he can actually voluntarily relinquished his medical license, um, specifically in order to stop the State Department of Health investigation. So July 2021. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. Let, let me ask, from your reporting so far, how would you summarize this story? A health system failing or is it one individual doctor who was sick? From my reporting, I would say 
it was it was all around. You know, we have um, in 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 the state let on the state level. You know, on the hospital level. Um, you know, there are federal laws that are supposed to regulate um, doctors and and their health to make sure that they're doing the right thing by their patients. So I think this was this was really all around. The it's it's pretty clear from from public documents that leadership at, at St. Vincent's knew that there were complaints coming in from patients and from staff. Um, but then the Florida Department of Health, you know, has investigators that are supposed to, you know, their whole job is to look into claims like these. Um, and, you know, they were really delayed in doing so. And then he relinquished his license, which stopped the investigation, which maybe could have brought more answers about how this happened, especially on the hospital level. So everybody really failed here. As I listen to this, I mean, there, there's just no no winners, uh, sadly. I, no. I, I know our listeners uh, will be wondering, you know, maybe this brings up the whole story of the competence of their physician. Are they sick? Or is there something going on? What do you recommend someone should do if they have concerns about their doctor's health and or ability to practice. I mean, from all your reporting, what do you take away in terms of advice to our listeners out there? Well, I can really speak to what the um, couple dozen patients that I spoke to told me that they wished that they had done. One of the first things um, was to not just trust reviews online I know that seems obvious, but, you know, for example, you know, when you're experiencing pain in, in, in your joints, you know, and, and you're experiencing some kind of health issue, you want to get it fixed as soon as possible. And so I think a lot of the people um, who were patients of Dr. Heakin saw, oh, the reviews online are good. And so they kind of took that and ran with it. Um, and so when they did meet in person with Dr. Heakin, and they noticed that um, there was something going on with him physically that that didn't seem quite right for a surgeon. They brushed it off. Something in their intuition and also just with their own eyes told them something is not right. And they continued anyway. And most of them told me because they trusted him. They said, oh, he's a doctor. He's a doctor with nurses around. Like we can trust these people um, simply for the fact of their job. Um, and I'm not saying that all of them were bad people or anything. I don't think that at all. But if you're, you know, someone looking for a doctor for something, you really can't just trust someone just because they're a doctor. Yeah. The next thing would be that if you think um, something is not right, don't just alert um, like other staff in the hospital. Also go to the Florida Department of Health and, and file a complaint. Um, because what's interesting is that none of the patients that I interviewed actually opened their own complaint into the department to the Department of Health. They either didn't know they could do that or they assumed, oh, I've told a nurse something's wrong with the doctor. She'll take care of it. She'll escalate it to management. And, you know, they did that here and, and nothing happened. More people ended up getting getting injured. So I would say, you know, don't just trust online reviews really go in person and meet the doctor. And if you don't have a good feeling, um, go find a different doctor if something doesn't feel right. Such important advice. Uh, I'm curious, uh, with so many lawsuits, uh, such a dramatic uh, aspect to this whole case, is this case unusual? Have you, have you ever seen anything quite like this with so many numbers and for, for frankly, the length of how long this case has lasted? I, I personally have never seen or or heard of, of anything to this level. I mean, it's a lot of lawsuits. It's a lot of claims and, and a, a lot of patients. Um, so, no, I've, I've never seen anything like this. Um, you know, I know there's been major ma medical malpractice cases other places in Florida, of course, and across the nation. This isn't sure, you know, just sure, um, yeah. confined uh, to Florida. But, no, this this is unusual. And, I mean, the you know, when the lawyers uh, for the plaintiffs as well, I, I don't know that they've ever dealt anything with this magnitude it's, as well. It's huge, huge, huge lawsuit. 
do other states or countries have policies in place to prevent something like this from happening again? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There are um, things on the federal and and the state level. I mean, you know, obviously we have a whole state department of health who's right. has a has a you know a, a a whole you know whatever unit or wing of their department to look. Um, into investigations um but you know in general it's it's you know for the most part doctors are just kind of allowed to to continue on you know there's um there's loopholes i can say certainly in state law that allow doctors um who have claims made against them to continue to be able to practice um even if they've had several claims against them so there's all kinds of ways that you know doctors uh, can can uh, kind of get out of really being um, examined. Catherine, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today. This has been uh, incredibly helpful, very sad, but uh, very helpful. And uh, I hope that uh, we all find uh, some solution to all of this uh, with time and other ways to kind of mitigate these, uh, well, to prevent this from happening again. I just want to thank you so much for all the time and advice and your exceptional reporting. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate speaking to you. We've been talking to Florida Times Union Enterprise reporter Catherine Lewin, who has done exceptional investigative reporting on the surgeon's case here in Jacksonville. To all our listeners, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and if you're just joining us, we're talking about what to do if your doctor is sick, plus assessing and rehabbing doctors with medical issues. And we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. We now turn our focus to solutions for evaluating and rehabbing doctors who have a medical issue, whether physical or psychiatric. In 1996, the University of California in San Diego created a program called PACE, or Physician Assessment and Clinical Education, to help ensure the safety of patients by formally evaluating and assessing doctors and offering remediation for healthcare workers. Their assessments can be performed on practicing physicians, as well as those who are seeking to reenter practice or obtain initial medical licensure. They also offer physician monitoring services through a physician enhancement program and a number of continuing professional development courses. The PACE program is the largest assessment and remediation program for healthcare professionals in the country and has provided services to over 2,000 physicians and medical professionals, including podiatrists, physician assistants, and nurses. The director of the PACE program, Dr. David Bazo, joins us now from San Diego, California. Dr. Bazo, welcome to our show. Thank you, Dr. Servin. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm quite delighted to, uh, to get into the interview. Well, we are delighted to have you here. So tell our listeners a little about the PACE program. I know I gave some of it in the introduction, but give us your sense of what is the PACE program? Yeah, and I think you captured it fairly well, but let me go into a little more detail. As you mentioned, uh, the program started in 1996, and it was uh, started by um, our uh, founder and uh, current emeritus uh, director, Dr. William Norcross. Dr. Norcross, as well as one of our other faculty members, were doing uh, reviews of physicians for the California Medical Board. So when a uh, uh, a patient or another um, physician or anyone uh, really can make a complaint to the medical board, the medical board investigates the complaint to see if there are any issues related to the delivery of healthcare. And sometimes they will do uh, an assessment. Um, back before 1996 and the uh, origination of the PACE program, it involved uh, basically an interview with the uh, physician who had the complaint against them and a few physicians of the same specialty, and they were going to uh, 
uh, interview and speak with that doctor to determine if there were any deficiencies or issues. Um, Dr. Norcross, who was also the director of the Family Medicine Residency Program at the time, uh, as an educator said, you know what, there has to be a better way. We have to um, do a little bit more than just spending a little bit of time interviewing someone. So um, he uh, created uh, what is currently the PACE program. And over the years, we have refined and enhanced our ability to do these high fidelity evaluations. So um, because, you know, our whole goal is to make sure that physicians are safe to practice and are, you know, at uh, limited risk of uh, causing harm to the public. So patient safety is really our driving force here. And um, so we evaluate physicians who have been identified by uh, any of the medical boards uh, within the United States, or even we have had referrals from um, uh, uh, licensing boards and uh, disciplinary bodies outside of the United States. And they send doctors to us, we uh, review what the complaint was, and then we perform an assessment of these physicians to determine number one, are they safe to practice? Uh, number two, are there any deficiencies that we found? And if so, are those deficiencies something that we can help with uh, remediating to get the, the physician back into the workforce safely. Now, along the way, um, what we found is it was not just a medical knowledge or a procedural problem or, you know, um, something having to do with uh, just um, having the requisite medical skills, but, you know, physicians are humans too, and there are other things that impact them, such as stress, um, health sure. issues, et cetera. And, and so just like um, everyone else uh, can be impacted by a health issue that impacts their ability to do their job or live, physicians are the same way. So we had to expand our services by not only evaluating the competence of physicians, but also any health issues, including general health, uh, psychiatric or psychologic health, uh, and that includes uh, substance uh, issues, and mental health um, beyond that to cognitive issues because just like uh, you know uh, everyone else physicians are uh, prone to the same medical issues that everyone else is and you know some of those things can impact ability to practice so we're all about if an issue has been identified the physician comes to us we evaluate them from stem to stern you know from a, a health standpoint uh, um, a competence standpoint to practice medicine in their specialty and make that determination and, you know, give some assistance or um, give information to the referrer that uh, there, there might be um, some other issues that may not be remediable. And so, uh, you know, limitations would have to be placed. Understood. So I'm curious. So is, is the program aimed to the healthcare system? Is it to the individual doctor? Um, is the referrals only from the system or a board or is it the individual doctor? Is it all comers? It's all of the above. And you've done a nice job in categorizing that. So we get referrals from the state medical boards and each state has at least one medical board. Some states have two because one for allopathic MD physicians and the other for osteopathic DO physicians. Um, so, you know, if you look at the United States and its territories, there are about 70 medical boards. So we get referrals from medical boards. We also get referrals from hospitals who have done um, peer review evaluations or even very large medical groups who have concerns about one of their physicians and don't have the capacity to evaluate that, that physician. So then the hospital or the medical group. But we also get individual doctors who are trying to reenter practice or regain licensure for whatever reason. And they come to us to prove that they've got what it takes to be a doctor. You know, it's it's not easy, um, but they need to have, you know, the abilities to uh, practice medicine here and, in, in, you know, in today's medicine, not, you know, uh, old knowledge, et cetera. And so we evaluate uh, them to see if they're safe to practice. And I might add one other thing at this point in that because of all of our experience, we have developed a screening program that physicians can come to to get their health and cognitive and um, procedural uh, you know, uh, issues evaluated 
uh, to kind of give them a, a, a health checkup, if you will, uh, that things are good and that they're still okay to practice. And if we identify something during the screen, we might recommend that they do further evaluation to really determine if there is something going on. And that, uh, that program is called our Late Career Health Screen. And uh, the reason that came about is number one, we found that there were some predisposing factors that might have impact so that um, if someone knew about these things ahead of time, they could have prevented you know, patient harm or some kind of issue from coming on. Um, so it's really like a preventive health check, if you will. And then, of course, some hospitals, um, as you probably heard in the news, some hospitals have policies that at, at a particular age, uh, a physician um, on their staff, they want to uh, proceed with a health screening uh, for them. That is uh, so, you know, right now um, we, we're dealing with similar cases here in Florida and I imagine many others. I'm, I'm curious. Um, what are the most common medical conditions that you're seeing referred to you all with regards to these evaluations? What, what's, what's the thing yeah. that really uh, comes out at you? Well, it, it's a few. Uh, there's a few that are more common than others. But again, it, it could be anything. Um, I'll talk, you know, and what we have done, and this is more of uh, internal just to help, there's the competency assessment program, which is if there's like a, uh, a technical, a medical knowledge or a skills-based problem. And then we have what's called our fitness for duty evaluation, which is uh, the term we use if it's more of a health concern. And we've gotten all types of health concerns. For example, we've had physicians um, who have developed uh, potentially some early Parkinson's disease. And so they might be proceduralists. And so, you know, the question is, is, is there Parkinson's advanced so that that would impact their ability to practice safely or can they still practice safely as long as the disease is managed? We've had other uh, mental health issues. You know, there's been um, um, depression can happen in anybody. And sometimes if the depression gets severe enough, it can impact someone's ability to practice. We've also had um, cognitive uh, issues where people might be developing a, a little bit of a mild cognitive impairment, which could, not necessarily is, but could be a precursor to developing dementia. And, you know, again, uh, that happens to everyone. And we, you know, have some statistics uh, of what that is in the general population and physicians are part of the general population. So just like anyone else, they can have health conditions come on. We've also had um, physicians who have had uh, perhaps even a heart attack and um, or any, uh, some kind of major medical trauma where they have uh, had some impact to their ability to do things from uh, an accident, like a car accident, or perhaps a mountain biking accident, um, or you know, a physician had a heart attack and had to get CPR, was revived, got their heart set up, and are they okay to go back into practice, or even a stroke, like a small stroke. Um, you know, part of it depends on what their specialty is, what the requirements of that specialty is, whether there's procedures involved or not, whether it's a cognitive specialty, et cetera. So we try to do evaluation based on what the issue was and what it is that they do. And again, to determine uh, safety or not safety, um, or not safe, I should say, and um, whether there are any issues that can be remediated or not. And sometimes it involves going and getting uh, some treatment for a condition right. and then coming back for a reevaluation after the treatment has been um, initiated or completed. One of the words you said in your earlier answers uh, that struck me is that you are trying to provide high fidelity assessments. And so I imagine for a surgeon, um, that means, does that mean you're observing them? Like you, you actually go in there and observe the practice, if you will? Um, we, we are not at that point. Um, we're entering some of that, but what we, uh, we are so lucky here at the University of California, San Diego. We have a state-of-the-art facility at our medical school campus that is dedicated to simulation, and we have a, a center that's called the Center for the Future of Surgery, where we have many, many simulators. We also can simulate uh, surgeries, and we have done so. And um, we, you know, we use um, uh, either simulation models or we use cadaver specimens. 
uh, that are available to us at the medical school because you know we use cadavers to teach the students and then surgeons um, as they are getting ready to do procedures uh, will use cadaver um, parts to practice surgeries and we have that ability because the the simulation center and the center for future of surgery has um, over a hundred thousand square feet dedicated to just simulation and um, it is it is an amazing center and we are really lucky to have that as a resource here on campus and simulators are getting better and better each and every day uh, because again you want to make sure that you know before you start doing a procedure or something on a on a live patient uh, that you've had some practice in doing it and some observation and feel very comfortable. Let's assume uh, you brought this up. Uh, someone has Alzheimer's. Uh, someone has Parkinson's disease. These conditions uh, they go on for ten plus years or so. Uh, before they are so uh, they're so evident, if you will. I mean, you could argue sometimes they're way evident before then, but but about that amount of time, how do you how do you follow this person? Is there is there a connection between like the program, the state medical board, a nursing board? Why you why you see these uh, see these particular individuals? Yeah, let me well let me give you an example of. Um you know, one of the uh, physicians that went through our fitness for duty evaluation, um, he was a physician that did procedures, uh, was sent to us by his hospital because, again, there was concerns about early Parkinson's disease. Uh, he was doing a procedure and the nurses reported that he was shaking and, um, you know, they had some concern about his ability uh, to do that procedure. Uh, he did not have any complications, uh, um, you know, up to that point. But they were concerned because, again, they were concerned about patient safety. So they sent him to us and we evaluated him. And of course, um, unfortunately, he was a fairly young man that had early Parkinson's. Um, and um, we determined that that was, in fact, the case with our own individual evaluation. He had had his um, evaluation as well from a health standpoint, but um, he, we ran him through simulations, we ran him through cognitive assessments, et cetera, and we found that he was doing pretty well. And in fact, we had um, statistics to uh, measure his performance in the simulations against others, uh, including um, uh, trainees and uh, other uh, physicians who had gone through the simulation. And the numbers were good and his performance was great. So because Parkinson's um, is a progressive disease, we found him fit at that time at the first evaluation. But he came back to us every year for five years. Wow. Wow. Monitor his progress and how he was doing. And it really was at that last evaluation that his symptoms got much worse and he knew it. And then we confirmed that, and so uh, he ended up uh, going on medical disability at that point. Um, but it was, you know, it was not contentious. It was something that was, um, you know, very respectful, very collegial, and, um, you know, in the end, I think it was what was right for him and what was right for the patients and what was right for the system that had um, referred him to us. So, so this that's one example, uh, but you, you, I want to just take a little step back that, um, you know, the cognitive issues um, are, are a little harder to pick up on because um, physicians have a high verbal IQ and are a little bit better able to hide some of those mild cognitive deficits as they are going along. And let's face it, it's very hard to... Um, um, to say to someone, hey, it looks like you're kind of skipping a step there. Have you been evaluated? Yeah, that's a very difficult yeah. conversation to have with a colleague. But that's why we have the screening program now. And, um, you know, we're trying to make that uh, a little bit easier with some objective information. And, um, you know, it, it's really trying to uh, get a step ahead of the game. But you're absolutely right. These things are sometimes very difficult to pick up on. Dr. Bazo, as we, uh, as we have time for just a few more questions. So briefly, let me ask you this. Um, I, one of the questions that comes up, uh, we are facing, uh, a, a, what some would argue an epidemic of the number of cases of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's that we're seeing amongst other medical conditions. So I'm curious, do you foresee any federal policy changes similar? What's done with airline pilots 
but applying them to doctors, surgeons, or other healthcare workers? Do you, do you ever see yeah. it go that way? You know, I, I hope not, because as a profession, um, part of our duty to the public and our social contract, as you, if you will, is to monitor ourselves and monitor our colleagues and prevent those things from happening. Um, I think um, while, you know, I, I can't, I don't have any control over federal legislation, I, I hope that it doesn't come to that because when you throw uh, a larger net, then sometimes it has unintended consequences. And I think that with um, a number of uh, healthcare organizations and hospital systems, as they are um, dealing and grappling with this, they're coming up with some policies and you know maybe doing some kind of screen is gonna be good for everyone. It's good for the physician, it's good for the patient, it's good for the system that you know we kind of get a little seal of approval. We do have, you know, um, most of the physicians in the United States uh, are on um, board certification, and there's now a process where we get recertified every so often, and we have to do things to maintain and show that we have the requisite knowledge and abilities to perform what it is that we're doing. And so I think that's a good thing. Um, what we don't have is the um, health side of that. So doing kind of, you know, your checkup. I mean, you know, you bring your car in for oil changes and you do some preventive maintenance with the tires and the brakes and things like that. Um, we as, as um, physicians, when we treat our patients, we talk about preventive health maintenance. Yeah, we do. And I think, yeah, and I think that that's something that we could, you know, apply a very similar model to physicians because, you know, when you talk about federal, you talk about people that are in um, occupations that have to do with safety. So like airline pilots, you know, you mentioned, um, FBI agents, even lighthouse keepers have uh, sort of a, a mandatory retirement. I am completely against mandatory retirement because I think if we do that, we're going to lose a lot of great people who have wonderful knowledge, skills and just um, wisdom to pass along. And um, that's why I think it's good for us to do a little bit more of sort of a, um, a check-in and say, hey, how you doing? Are you doing okay? Are you, you know, is there a little uh, issue? If there's a little issues, it's something that we can work on and try to prevent it from becoming worse. And if not, you know, at some point it, um, it comes time that maybe you should, um, you know, look to cut back or perhaps do something sure. else you know, kind of thing. And I, and I, I, I'm a family doctor by training and sports medicine. So prevent prevention is built into me. So this is part of my, uh, my DNA here. Dr. Baza, one more question, uh, before we go to our listeners questions, our listeners out there may be listening to this and they may be wondering what advice do you have for them? Should they be worried about their medical doctor or surgeon? What what would you tell them to, to the public that's going to see their doctor and they may actually have that concern? Yeah, my, my whole goal is not to throw up a big scare flag because many, many people, the, the very large majority of people have wonderful physicians, wonderful physician-patient relationships. But I think like anything else, if you get a sense that there might be something going on, um, don't be quiet, you know, talk about it. And, um, you know, it's it's a little more difficult in a doctor-patient relationship. But, you know, um, if, if uh, I, I work within the UC San Diego health system and we um, actively seek um, evaluations from our patients after the fact as to, you know, how are we doing? How's the office doing? How's your doctor doing? Did you get all of your healthcare issues addressed? So if there is an issue that you're concerned about, try to elevate it to someone that can do something. Um, and I, you know, while I hope it doesn't get to this, but there's always, if something bad occurs, um, you know, there are, there is recourse. It's not just a lawsuit, but a person can make a complaint to the hospital, make sure. a complaint to the health system or make a complaint to the medical board. Um, but again, my, my whole thing is, is prevention. So if there's uh, an issue, try to bring it up ahead of time so it can be addressed openly and transparently. It's I, a little harder to do, but I think if we get into that mindset, it would be better for everyone. I appreciate that. And it is terrific advice. Thanks so much. Thank you.
It's time for a social media mailbag. Mr. Postman. Our director, Isabella Da Silva, joins us now with questions for our experts from our listeners. Isabella, what do we have in the bag? Anna, a med student at Dartmouth in New Hampshire, asks, Why is medical licensure managed at the state level and not at the federal level? She says the system lets bad doctors hide by moving to another state if something goes wrong. Dr. Bazo, I know this isn't exactly about rehabbing physicians, but it is an interesting point that this med student is making about the system. Uh, would you comment on this? Happy to comment on this because, you know, as you can imagine, I'm uh, fairly well-versed in, in these types of things. So first and foremost, um, if a physician does get uh, disciplined uh, or investigated in a state that does get reported to the National Practitioner Database so that other states' uh, medical boards have that available. And then with regards to um, state licensure versus national licensure, this is you know really historic and it has to do with state states' rights. And as I mentioned, um, you know, there are 70 medical boards for 50 states and territories. And that's because even within a state, you can have two medical boards. You can have an osteopathic um, physician medical board and an allopathic physician medical board. So um, I don't know the answer to that, but the Federation of State Medical Boards is an organization that brings the medical boards together for discussion. And there had been some discussion about national licensure, but I think, again, going back to autonomy of states, uh, that might be um, uh, a little bit of a push. I don't, I won't state that it'll never happen, but I think there are definitely some challenges to that. But with regards to our listeners, um, you know, question about doctors hiding, that's, that's a little harder to do because if you have a problem in one state, right. I, I will state that, you know, uh, it's almost an automatic check that if that doctor tries to go to another state, they're going to check and see if there's uh, some kind of discipline that has already occurred. Yeah, I know, like even from myself, I do a lot, I have licenses in multiple states for telemedicine purposes. And I know from having those licenses, they always say never uh, withdraw from one state because that will immediately bring up a question in the other state that something did not go right. Uh, so I can attest to what you're saying just on a personal basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Isabella, what else do we have in the mailbag? An anonymous doctor in Albuquerque says they're worried about the ability of one of their colleagues to continue practicing. He is 71 years old, and every time they voice their concerns to their department chair, they're told there's a doctor shortage and no one can get hurt. Does this doctor have an ethical duty to report this to the state's medical board? Dr. Baza, this is a fascinating one, but I imagine one you get pretty frequently. It, it is one that comes up and it, and, it, and it goes to the point that I mentioned a little bit earlier and that it is difficult to make complaints about colleagues and things like that. Um, but, you know, I also want to refer back to the point that we are professionals and by definition, professionals need to monitor themselves. And we have an ethical duty and our social contract uh, states that we need to monitor ourselves. So I think if this one, if this physician does have a concern, um, they can go beyond the department chair to higher leadership. Um, also, many hospitals have what's called a physician well-being committee. And a physician well-being committee, this would be a perfect opportunity for them to get involved because that is kept um, separate from the disciplinary process. And so, it, you know, it's, it's like um, if they are concerned about, quote unquote, getting this doctor in trouble, then um, at least through the physician well-being committee, there can be an evaluation to determine if there is some cognitive deficit. But, you know, for this physician, if they are not getting the response that they ethically and professionally and morally feel is appropriate, then it they they could report it to the medical board. But I think um, a better way to do it is to try to keep it within the system, utilizing physician well-being committee um, or going above the chairman um, stating their concerns. Because, you know, the last thing we want to happen is something bad to a patient that could have been prevented because then the patient suffers and then the doctor suffers and then the system suffers. So, you know, really this is where it's important as I'll go back to this, to have open, honest, transparent uh, conversation about these issues. 
Dr. Bazo, I could spend so much more time with you on this huge topic, but I want to say thank you so much for all of your time, advice, and wisdom on, on, this, on this critical issue. It's been my pleasure, and I'm, I'm happy to get the word out because, again, this is, uh, to me, it's, it's fascinating, and I think it's a very important thing for our healthcare system to really make sure the patients know and trust that the system is out there, it's working, and we are doing our very best to deliver the best healthcare to everyone from all standpoints. I, I love it, and thank you so much. We'll let that be our last word. We've been talking to Dr. Bazo. He is the director of the PACE program at the University of California in San Diego. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckett. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella De Silva is our director. Gary Autry is our intern. Next week's program is devoted to curing epilepsy and the little-known black founder of modern nursing, Mary Seacole. If you have questions about these or any topics, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.